Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. This is a very special episode. In 1987, author and journalist Tim Cahill traveled to London to conduct an interview with Kubrick during his publicity rounds for Full Metal Jacket. What transpired was a wide-ranging, two-hour conversation covering topics like editing techniques, working with actors, budgeting, critics, beer commercials, professional football, and much more. These tapes have never before been heard by the public. Now, more than 30 years after this conversation took place, Mr. Cahill has given us permission to share these recordings exclusively with our listeners. We are enormously appreciative to Mr. Cahill for his generosity. Before we get to this interview, a little business. The Kubrick series is a production of the Movie Geeks United podcast. We first started the series in 2010, and we continue to produce new programming on an ongoing basis. To access all of our Kubrick series content, including special episodes and over 50 uncut interviews with Kubrick's closest friends, collaborators, and assorted critics and analysts, visit thekubrickseries.com. For a one-time donation of $10, you can enjoy all of it, including early access to new content before it goes public. Now, enjoy the interview. I'm not going to be asking any conceptualizing questions, right? God damn, that's all the books I've read, but all they are is conceptualizing. Yeah, but not by me. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's my, they, I mean, that's the thing I hate I to do. I was intimidated with. reading these books. I thought I had to ask these questions. Hell no. <laughs> now, I've always been trapped and pinned down and sort of, sort of harried by them and forced sometimes to make up or write or let other people write these answers. But I think the most difficult thing to deal with, you know, when you're so inside something, especially as soon as it's finished, is to uh, be asked to do this sort of, uh, you know, five-line capsule summary that you'd read in uh, a magazine about, you know, this is a story about the blah, 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 blah. The 15-second word. Well, these are always... You know what I think that happens You've said, and the uh, truthful and valid ideas are so multifaceted that they don't lend themselves to front and salt, as you have to be discovered by the audience. And the thrill of the discovery reinforces the ideas. Uh, I'm pretty good at generalized statements, but when I'm asked, what is this? I still can't tell somebody what. Paz the Glory is about, you know, without sounding like a bad synopsis of it. Without any neat package to tie it up and what they 
but I think it's something that, uh, I mean, perhaps it's uh, the uh, ultimately, uh, you know, the vanity of uh, the person talking, and thinking that the work is, uh, you know, uh, <coughs> bigger, more important, uh, and and uh, then they can uh, describe it. Uh, and uh, I, I've heard some slick. In fact, just the other day, I was listening to uh, E.M. Foster uh, in a recording, I think from 1972, talking about the uh, uh, the libretto of Billy Budd, which I, which he, which he, which he did. And uh, he was very clever, uh, and really just got away with saying a few things like uh, Satan left his calling card, and uh, uh, you know some really good things that he probably worked on, and yeah. managed to kind of get away with. Uh, not being pinned down as to what he was trying to do or what the thing was about and so on. I, I, you know, it is, uh, if, if anything is, uh, if it has any substance and subtlety, uh, it is difficult to, uh, to whatever you say uh, pushes somebody in another direction and it's never, the, it's certainly never complete and it's usually wrong and it's overly simplistic. So, as I say, perhaps it's vanity, but I find it very difficult and squirm and try to evade it. If people ask, what does this mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they want you to say, I think, you know, this is a story of the duality of man and the duplicity of governments or something like that. And this is, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. and, you know, I hear people uh, try to do it sometimes in interviews. Uh, it's... Uh, it usually is uh, bullshit, or if the work is good, it's it's sort of uh, well, it's usually irrelevant if you've seen if you've seen the thing. Fellini's very good. He just sort of makes these sort of uh, Fellini. He just makes these jokes and says preposterous things that you know he couldn't possibly mean, and uh, and it makes an amusing interview. I just. What book was this? Yeah, this book called Very Free. Was it a novel? What I find actually is that <coughs> I, I, I used some of the questions from the previous interview as answers. <laughs> Somebody comes up with a, an amusing question or something, or something that I hadn't thought of. And I, I, it, it, I think if you read the reviews in sequence, you'd see the, the traces of each interview in the next one. It's very, it, you know, I, I don't know, you know, obviously uh, I'm doing it because I want to, uh, you know,
know, help the film, so I can't complain. But it, it is, it, as you did it for the book. But um, it isn't, it isn't, uh, well, I thought it's difficult. In doing it for the book, is I, I was doing a very disturbing subject. At the time when I was writing it, I would really have liked to have talked to someone to, to, to bounce my ideas off of it. But by the, by the time I would get to something that disturbed me that I couldn't figure out, I was so deeply into it that I would have to talk to somebody for about two days to get them up to speed. Yeah. Before I could say, and then this, what do you think about this? When I was done with the book, I pretty much figured it all out for myself. You know, it was settled, you know, to me. Um, and that sort of the way that this happened with, uh, with this one and with many of the others. I mean, you took off to examine a subject matter, artistic or scientific uh, subject matter, and Settled? Well, I mean, it's settled in the sense that, uh, you know, the criteria, you know, starts off being when you read, uh, assuming that it's a, a book or something somebody's written, when you read it for the first time, I mean, that's uh, your only really pure experience with it. And that's one of the things I like about uh, uh, not writing original material, uh, uh, although I'm not, I'm not even certain that I could. Um, but you have this tremendous advantage of reading something for the first time, which is an experience you never have again with the story. I mean, the first time is something which you cannot ever guess about, you know? So um, that's the first thing. Then you have a reaction to it, and um, uh, the subsequent readings, you know, are more analytical. But, you know, you have to start with, a, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like falling in love reaction with, with the material. So then uh, it just becomes, you know, a matter of uh, almost like a, a, a code breaking of uh, breaking the thing down into uh, a structure that seems to be, you know, still truthful, not losing the, you know, the ideas or the content of the feeling of the book and uh, trying to get it into a uh, the much more limited uh, time frame of a movie, and the criteria really always is, you know, is it is it truthful, and is it interesting, and uh, for as long as you possibly can, do you still, while well, you can retain any sort of emotional attitude about it, you know, are you still responding to uh, to what's there? So the process is uh, sort of semi-analytical, well, very analytical, but but at the same time semi just emotional. We are trying to balance. Uh, calculating analysis against feeling. Uh, but it almost never is a question of uh, what does this scene mean? You know, what is it, you know, what is the, are we building an argument? Uh, it, it, it's much more, because uh, that, uh, you know, that tends somehow not to be, uh, you know, if the thing is truthful, if you, if you don't feel anything about it that's false, let's put it that way, and if it's interesting, and if it's, if it still feels like what you were feeling, uh, I find it's much more of an intuitive process, uh, more like what I would imagine writing music is like, uh, rather than a sort of uh, structuring an argument.
Did it? Oh yeah, but that, I mean, that's not time, really time decision. But but you said something. But that's not depending, depending a lot on, on intuition in some of those circumstances was not was 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 taking some awfully big chances. Well, I don't remember in what context I said it, but it isn't really contradictory because. Certainly, in the in the actual making of the movie, all these the the chest analogy becomes more uh, more valid because you're always pitting sort of time and resources against quality and ideas, and uh, you know, uh, is it worth uh, you know spending another day on this? Uh, you know, uh, how good is it? What could I do? So you're always trying to balance uh, uh, you know your resources against the time. That's perhaps what I was talking about, but in terms of the story, you know, the actual, the part of the film that is not, uh, the, you know, the, the, the part of the story, the, make, the part of the story, that, the part of the thing that it has to do with telling the story, which is essentially what I'm sort of uh, talking about, uh, works pretty much the way I said. And this is also why it, why it's never particularly uh, never leaves you in a very good position to come up with the uh, you know the four liners because uh, the process I mean it, it isn't careless and it isn't just sort of off the cuff and it isn't you know you write it on the paper and you shoot it but it, it's never it's never really like as I say structuring an argue, a logical argument uh, which which would then leave you with some very good neat ways of coming in on your answers. Do you play chess? No, I don't. Well, the chess analogy has more to do with uh, like tournament chess, you know, where you have a clock, yes. and you have to make a certain number of moves in a certain time where you forfeit, even if you're, uh, you know, a queen ahead or something. And uh, so, you know, you see the grandmaster chess thing where the guy, you know, has three minutes left on the clock and ten moves left. And he'll spend, uh, you know, two of those minutes on one move, which he knows if he doesn't get that one right, <coughs> it's going to be lost anyway. And then he makes the last uh, nine moves, you know, in a minute. And uh, he may have done the right thing. Well, you always have decisions like that, because you don't have, I mean, despite all of the sort of apocryphal stories about me, uh, almost all of which are untrue, uh, you, don't, I don't, you don't have unlimited resources, and they do watch the budget, and, uh, you know, you do have to account for what you're doing. And uh, so you're always trying to balance, uh, you know, resources against the outcome. I, I guess I know all there is to chess. I haven't seen the musical. Oh, I haven't it? seen it yet. No, is it good? I I was just not down. It was fun. I, I never go to musical towns. I just happen to be uh, in towns. Uh, how many? 
of severe accidents where uh, the picture was suspended up for almost six months. The guy that plays the drill instructor, Lee Ermey, in the middle of the shooting, <clears throat> one winter night, nobody knew why, his car skidded off the road and rolled over into some uh, waste ground in the park at about one o'clock in the morning. He broke all the ribs on one side and uh, tremendous injuries and probably would have died except uh, he was conscious and was flashing his lights because the car couldn't be seen from the road. And uh, he, he remained conscious and kept blinking his lights and blowing his horn. And after about, I don't know, he doesn't know how long, but a long time, a, a motorist stopped because, boy, he was in a place called Epping Forest where there's a lot of murders. They always find bodies there. And uh, you know, it's not the sort of place you get out of your car at 1.30 in the morning, go and look to see why somebody's flashing their lights. But somebody did. And, uh, but he was out for about four and a half months. Paris Island, Marine Corps drone something. I thought there was a, some verisimilitude. The only thing that he says he thinks is a little over the top is, because he said only over the top because nobody would do it again, is the scene where uh, Leonard is forced to walk with his pants down, sucking his thumb. He said that uh, a drill instructor did that but was kicked out of Paris Island for doing it. But So he said that wouldn't be done. And in today's Marine Corps, they certainly looking at their recruiting uh, stuff. Uh, it's it, uh, they're supposed to now be very nice, kind, firm. <laughs> but they, but they, 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 you know, there's no more, uh, or there's not supposed to be this sort of abuse. But uh, well, the, the one the one shocking thing that he did say, uh, and of course it ties into the sessions. Well, it's just his blind. I mean, in a way, you know what he means. Uh, they, they're great shots. He he fails to realize the irony of the comic irony of the example. But uh, I mean, it isn't that he thinks it was okay to shoot Kennedy, but he just is so one directional about what he's thinking. He doesn't realize what it sounds like. I mean, the thing about him is that uh, virtually every serious thing he says is, is basically true. If you're going to train Marines. Uh, or you want to, any any elite fighting forces? You know, you, you're you're talking about killing, you know, and uh, he makes that very clear. And when he says, uh, you know, a rifle is only a tool, it's a hard heart that kills, and some of all those things he says are are absolutely true. And unless you're living in a war where you don't need uh, fighting men, uh, you can't really fault him for anything except uh, perhaps a. Uh, Subtlety about his, his his behavior, which you which you can't have as a drill instructor anyway. No, you don't want to be introspective. And also, we see what I think is good about this is that usually this thing is to ingratiate itself with the audience. Will show that the drill instructor really has a heart of gold, and that he sits in his office, you know, with his eyes swimming with pride about what he's done and so forth. Well, I mean, he may be proud, but uh, I don't think it's like. Although I think you know. I think the Luke Gossett performance was wonderful, and he had to do what he was given in the story, but it isn't that kind of sentimental bullshit. I mean, I suppose he's proud of the boys when they get out of it, but it's not... The film, as you probably noticed, doesn't make any attempt to ingratiate itself in the normal ways with, with the audience, and tries just to be what, what, what I felt was true, whatever, well, and what Michael Harris... You don't make it easy. Well, 
Well, I mean, you know, the question is that, you know, I, I feel about the, the films is, is it, is it truthful? Is it interesting? You know, to worry about uh, the sort of mandatory scenes or touches which people often think make a picture more, I keep thinking of the word ingratiating for the audience, seems to me, uh, you know, not something that you really have to do. I think the audience has more, that uh, is more intelligent and reacts more to the truth than some of the people that try to outguess them think they will. I mean, they will also like, uh, I mean, they, they will also like things that are essentially not true and unfun, but I mean, I don't think it prevents them from responding to things that are true and, and are interesting and dramatic. Uh, I mean, the world is not, as it's presented in the Frank Capra movies, uh, as good as they are, and as much in them that, uh, that, that <coughs> may be like life is sometimes, uh, very rarely, I must say. But, uh, you know, f films like that, which people also like and which are beautifully made, uh, I wouldn't describe as a true picture of life. On any level, you distrust sentimentality. Well, because sentimentality, I think, essentially means something that's slightly that is not really true. I, mean, I don't, I don't discount sentiment or emotion, but you know, the question is: is it is are you just giving them something to make them a little happier, or are you putting something in which is inherently true to the to the material? You know, are people behaving like we all really basically? think people would behave, or are they behaving perhaps the way we would like them to behave? Well, in Pals, Pals and Dora, it's remarkable scene in the end with the song. Mm -hmm. I love that scene. And even though it's being sung in German, you know it's a kind of a sentimental song. Mm -hmm. It's probably it's probably corny in some context. Except, of course, the men in Paths of Glory are all, are essentially all victims of the situation. I mean, the, in Paths of Glory, uh, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the officers, you know, the generals on one level, the men on the other. So the men have never in Paths of Glory been, you know, have been, any, have been anything but victims. And Kirk is, of course, a, a good person all throughout it. It's just, uh, it's just an emotional. Again, I would say it's more like a musical thing. I don't mean literally with the singing, but it's just a, a an emotional thing that felt right at the end of the film. Again, it did. It didn't seem false, and it somehow seemed like, a, you know, the right melodic theme. If you think of the structure of the thing more in terms of music than than argument. Well, I'll tell you what he what it, you what it what he means. I mean, we discovered, or I discovered, 
that um, Columbia had uh, lost the negative, the picture negative of Dr. Strangelove, and they also lost the magnetic master soundtrack. Uh, and this went on, this search went on for about a year and a half, and finally uh, I had to uh, try to uh, reconstruct from two not too good fine grains, which are, you know, one step fine grain positives, to try to make another master negative of inferior quality from those, so that if the fine grains were ever torn, uh, they were both damaged already, uh, that there would still be a way of producing a picture, because if those fine grains went, you could never make any more negatives. All the printing negatives they had were shit. They were badly ripped dupes. Um, uh, you know, so you're into things like that. You know. and, uh, and as you check back on all of them, uh, uh, various things are, you know, now that I think they realize there's a tremendous future market in um, ancillary, you know, ways of showing a film, they're much more careful. But you have no idea how what chaos the archiving of uh, of the movies pre, you know, the TV cassette and everything else were. I mean, they're just so careless. Simple. Depends on the company. I mean, so the ones that were sort of real major studios that had. If they had the right kind of post-production department, they they did keep things better. But in this case, I, I couldn't believe it. So that's that's been going on. You've been music's been something that's always been important. This is really the first one that had a pretty nearly contemporary. Well, first of all, they were music of the period. Yeah. But I was also, I, I imagine this was 67, 68. Well, the Tet Offensive was 68. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, January of 68. So. But not, uh, unless we were a bit careless, none of the material is post 68. No, no I, I'm not saying that. Mm. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that. Uh, one associates. At least I do more with uh, um, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. Uh, yeah, thanks. Oh well, I mean, it depended on the scene. I mean, first of all, um, it just seemed you know certain music. We 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 had. Uh, oh, I don't know. We must have. I guess we've got uh, probably uh, everything that I could find that from about 1962, which was too early, right up to the period, we got the uh, billboard, <coughs> uh, you know, list of uh, top 100s for each year and so forth. And we just went through all the stuff that that uh, seemed like interesting choices, got the stuff in, tried it against the scene. Thank you. And, uh, you know, certain things just work with the scene and some don't. Uh, it's, you know, sometimes it has to do with just, you know, is the dynamic range of the recording too great to ever work in with the dialogue? I mean, is it, because if you, if you have to come under the speech at some point, 
And if, if, if there's a tremendous dynamic range, you just wind up hearing the, the loudest things and you don't hear the bass or anything else. So some of the choices really just have to do with that. But um, of that, we pick, I picked the things that somehow seemed, uh, you know, interesting and work for the scene. Uh, well, to follow up on that. Why don't you like these boots of made for walking? I do. It's, it it's I, I, I epitomizes the period, you know. Um, Nancy yeah. was there. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing that. And Willie Bully is such a terrific piece. It's a party record, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, Surf and Bird is such an amazing piece of music. Well, now that, that is the one. <clears throat> um, I see because. This is this is where the, the interviewer <laughs> talks. But uh, you know, in Strange Love, there's a, there's that famous uh, scene where uh, it's uh, with the tribal tenderness with the yeah. with the refueling and the you know, uh, it's a, and uh, then in 2001 you have the spacecraft and the blue daddy walks perfectly. In Vietnam, you have a chopper. Well, the other thing about that that I love is that it also suggests a sort of post-combat euphoria, which you see in uh, Crazy Earl's face, you know, when he, you know, after he shoots the guys that are running out of the building, you know, he misses the first four and he waits and he gets the next two. That great look on his face of, of euphoric uh, pleasure, which I, which one has read described in many, many uh, combat uh, accounts. Uh, Surf and Bird also seemed to catch that, because right as... It, when he's got this great look on his face, suddenly the music starts, and uh, and the tanks roll in, and you know the sort of the wrap up is happening at the battle, and, uh, and that's it. And there, and there. The choice is more arbitrary. But it was more arbitrary than I thought. there was some thought put to it. I can show you. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, this. Uh, I haven't uh, had a chance to see the, the book shirt, but if the, I understand that uh, it does take place uh, 67, 68. Well, it's all set in a couple of days at the time of the Tet Offensive. Uh, don't they do Quezon in the book as well? Yeah, then there's a, there's a, that's right, there's a, there's a final section of the book which we didn't do. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, this is the thing about books. You can't. You can't do it. No, unfortunately, this is this was a very short, very beautifully, economically written book, which, um, like the film, left out all the mandatory scenes of, of quote character unquote, you know, where the guy tells about his father who's an alcoholic and his mother who, you know, and his girl and this and that and all the stuff that you know bogs down. And it feels so arbitrarily inserted into almost every war story. The book is incredibly sparsely written uh, and beautifully written, um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, a hell of a lot is from the book. Some of it was to put it in the screenplay stage, and um, as far as the dialogue, I would say maybe fifty percent of Lee's dialogue, not the not the thought-out stuff, but the insult stuff, came from Lee. We did, uh, imp we did a, we, in hiring the Marine recruits, 
first of all, we wanted to get guys that looked right. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed in most war films is that when you put together 50 guys supposed to look like Marine recruits, not all of them look right. Uh, whatever looking right means, you know, just what I thought looked right. So we interviewed hundreds of guys who were uh, ex-paratrooper, territorial army guys of the right age, young British guys. And uh, in the course of these interviews, the way we did it is that Lee lined them all up and did an improvisation of the of the first meeting of the drill instructor and the recruits. And two things could be done. First of all, you could see how they'd react because he would they would they didn't know what he was going to say or anything. He would come on with all this stuff. So we wound up with about. I would say perhaps 150 pages of dialogue uh, that came out of these improvisations, some of which was so off the wall that we couldn't even use it in the movie. But a lot of the off the wall stuff, you know, like uh, Lawrence, that name sounds like royalty. Are you royalty? You know, it just came out of these, uh, you know, I don't like the name Lawrence. Lawrence is, an, you know, for sailors and faggots and sailors, uh, you know, you're so ugly you could be a modern art masterpiece, stuff like that. This just came out of these improvisations, so we worked it into the main part of the scene. I mean, some of the things like, I like you, you can come over to my house and fuck my sister, that's in the book. And a lot of it's in the book, but he also created a tremendous amount of stuff. But for instance, things like, this is my rifle, this is my gun, where they're holding their balls, that's in the book. So it's a, he contributed a lot of off-the-wall stuff, but most of the, well, all the plot is from the book. All have the same stock ad libs, yeah. and uh, in a way, of course, it, it is probably what prepared him for being an actor because you are being an actor. Well, yeah, that's you're reading dialogue, really. You've read, you're saying stuff you've said many times before, like you're saying it for the first time, and that, of course, is actually <clears throat> I've always found that's one of the best. If you have you know 20 minutes to try to figure out if somebody can act, the best way to do it is to talk to them for, say, five or six minutes, and then tell them to go out of the room and come in again and go over the same thing and tell them that they must answer the questions as if, you know, without betraying in any way that you've just gone over the same ground. So being able to uh, say what you've said before as if you've never said it again is really quite a good acting exercise. Uh, so it, obviously, I'm not sure that every drill instructor could do it, but, I mean, I think Lee has real acting talent. Uh, but it, it, it undoubtedly is what prepared him because uh, uh, I think he's I think he's great in the film. Right? Oh, I think he's wonderful. So I would like to know which scenes he was in, when his ribs were broken. The scene, the night he uh, it, 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 he broke his ribs the night after we shot. This is my rifle. This is my gun. With them walking up man holding balls. The next scene, I think he came back. Uh, was probably the, it was shot a little bit out of order, but that was at the point where his that was the last thing he did before he brought it home. Why did you, uh, if if the uh, if the book takes you both way and and uh, Kaysan, why did you choose way, the most atypical Vietnam? Well, because um, uh, well, first of all, the Tet Offensive is most atypical of Vietnam because it was just one time where they came out and fought a la World War II. And 
Huey was was the biggest example of it because they did uh, they had a division in in Huey and they it was a real World War II kind of battle. Um, it just seemed the more interesting uh, of the of the of the two things and um, some of the stuff. Uh, well, as I say, you've, you've got to, you've got to make choices when you when you you know when you uh, make when you decode the book and. Uh, uh, when you read the book, perhaps you'll see that the part we used were, were, was interesting and allowed, uh, you know, a better, a better kind of an ending. It was also uh, one of the soldiers. It was Kalamash. Yes. This is the way I thought it was. Pregnant. That's right. You see the enemy, kill him. Yeah. <laughs> there's no enemy. He says, "There's the enemy, kill him." Well, there was this, I mean, I should think there'd be no place in the world that you'd ever find like it. We found this area uh, which has this uh, 1930s functionalism, industrial functionalism architecture, which you see, I mean, we have stills in, in, in the, you know, no, obviously not every bit of way looked like that, but the, the, the sort of outer industrial parts, I mean, are absolute carbon copies of those buildings. So that was a, a, a break. But the thing is that the place was in was scheduled to be demolished completely. Uh, it had been uh, owned by British Gas and uh, a. Uh, That's where the bank. Yeah. And it uh, it is it is going to disappear completely. They're in the process of leveling it to the ground. They're, they're putting a tunnel across the Thames, and there's going to be a road through that. So. Uh, they allowed us to blow up buildings. We, you know, we had uh, demolition guys there, uh, working like uh, you know for a week laying charges and had this spectacular, you know, people, the executives from British Gas came on a Sunday with their families to watch all these buildings being blown up, and we also uh, we had a you know wrecking ball and crane there for about two months, with the art director, uh, you know, telling him which halls are not going to which buildings and so on. <laughs> sort of the delicate touch with the wrecking. Well, it's something which I don't think anybody has ever had because you cannot, you can, but it's almost beyond uh, any kind of economic possibility, really make uh, ruins because the three-dimensional rubble, I mean, every single thing would have to be done by plasterers and models and uh, I, I think you could not, you could not build that if you spent $80 million and five years doing it. I mean, you just couldn't do it with it. Was there. All those twisted bits of reinforced steel. You'd have to you'd have to copy something real anyway because it's a little bit like uh, rubble is like uh, you know if you're going to make if you're going to make a tree you've got, I've got to copy a real tree because every tree has some inherent logic in the way the branches you know and no one can really make up a tree and the other thing you find is nobody can make up a rock I found that in Pazaglory you had to copy rocks because rocks also have an inherent logic which you're not aware of. Until you see someone make a fake rock, and you realize that even though each detail looks right, there's something about the rock that you know isn't a real rock. So I don't think that could have been done. Uh, I don't think it could have ever been built. Uh, it would have been beyond, I think, anybody's resources. And then we also, uh, you know, brought in the palm trees, and the, uh, we brought it. We bought uh, uh, 
100,000 uh, plastic tropical plants from Hong Kong and stuff to put around and so forth. And it, you know, it was a tremendous set dressing and rubble job. And, uh, and then we added details of uh, bits of, you probably don't even realize it, but uh, bits of things that we also added to the building which, which looked like we, which you'd seen in Vietnam. So I, I think it's an amazing uh, break. I mean, could, I don't. I'm, I honestly don't think that could have been done anyplace. I mean, if they'd let you go to Vietnam and go to Hawaii, you couldn't have done it because they wouldn't have let you uh, wreck the place. You know? And Hawaii was really blasted to shit. Well, that was one of the things. I mean, I'd heard it. I mean, you know, those M79s fire this 40 millimeter, uh, I guess you could call them grenades, but they're not. They're really small shells. Those little bloopers, you know. And uh, the Laws rockets and the M60s, it is a tremendous firepower. I mean, a, a, a squad with a machine gun and a couple of M79s, you know, uh, can put a lot of uh, lead down. But of course, it. It just didn't. First of all, uh, according to Gus Hasford and to Lee, the Marines were really much more under control than the Army. And uh, this image of, uh, that you see in Platoon, they both said were not in the Marines. The Marines wore the right uniforms, wore their flak jackets, and were much more under control. It, didn't, it just didn't seem a particularly relevant. Uh, Thing. I mean, undoubtedly they took charge, but it just didn't seem, uh, it didn't seem to be a scene to make it worth doing. And uh, obviously, I'm not saying no Marines ever took drugs, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a feature, you know, where the army was really out of control. I mean, the French is just the flak jackets, you know, uh, people hated wearing them, and they fucking. Heavy, you know, but you know, the Marines did wear them. And when you see the shots in the in way, they're all wearing flank. These people want to always look at directors and Thank you. 
so metal jacket is in the book. I mean, that's, that's straight out of the book. Uh, it's just an accident. Uh, I mean, it's, there's no uh, master design. I know, but I mean, you know, you know, each each. I don't really. I don't think of any when I do a film. I don't think of it as part of a body of work. I just, you know, try to do justice to the story and. Uh, you know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I just try to do the best I can. <laughs> I, I don't think, well, you know, this is part of an overall framework of work. I mean, also, of course, we've got the Marines singing the Mickey Mouse song, which was, you know, there to suggest the uh, lost innocence of these boys, you know, who not so many years ago were probably actually singing the Mickey Mouse song uh, with the television set with Annette Funicello. Um, so there is a similarity there, uh, but uh, certainly it's not as a result of saying, you know, this is part of an overall framework. I mean, I suppose... Uh, I'm going to make a reference to my other film and, and hope the savvy viewer in the ribs. Oh, heavens no. I mean, there's another extraordinary accident, which uh, you probably may have noticed, in the back of Cowboy's uh, death scene, there is something that looks very much like the monolith in 2001. Uh, and it just happened to be uh, there. Uh, the whole area of that combat was one complete area. And uh, one of the things that I tried to do was to... Uh, give you a sense of where you were and where everything else was, which again is something in war movies you frequently don't get. Uh, you know, the, uh, the terrain of a small unit action is really the story of the action. And we try to make it really, you know, beautifully clear. You know, there's the low wall and there's the buildings facing them. And once you get into the area of the buildings, everything was where it actually was. There was no, you know, we picked this up from here and up from that. And when it actually came down to where could the sniper be and where were they and what would, where would they take him if they carried him around, they carried him around the corner. And there, right in the background, there was this thing that looked like the monolith. There was, there was almost no way to keep it out of the shot. So I'm sure people will, some people will think that there was some calculated uh, reference to the other film, but it really, it was just there. You see, you know, before I came to do this, A couple of very helpful books were academic, uh, and, uh, and they, they certainly do analyze these things uh, to, uh, to orgy of uh, analysis. I'm sorry, I just looked at my watch and it said 12 o'clock. I couldn't believe it. It was set on. <laughs> These wises are always wrong.
Are you, do you want me to order some sandwiches? Are you hungry right now? Uh, let me just see if I can find some of you. Oh, I have. Uh, are you a computer man? Yeah, I have. Uh, you know, a uh, Compaq Two. You know, the two eighty six. It's called the Compaq two eighty six. You know, twenty megabyte hard drive. And I use, uh, I use, uh, you know, word processing, database, and spreadsheet, uh, which is tremendous help. I mean, my God, it's, it's the dreariness of keeping track of things. So what, do you, what do you use? Well, I, I just do uh, cameras today. I mean, you really can't buy a camera that isn't good. It's just really, do you like these features or those features? Were there any... Uh, some of the, you, you have a reputation for using some, some new technology. Uh, I don't know much about the mechanics of making the film. Was there some technology that was used? That, uh, no, really not. What about the editing? Oh, that was possible. I edited the thing on the montage video editing computer, which is a very clever device where uh, you uh, load the material of the scene into 17 different uh, tape transports. You have the same material on 17 machines. And the computer, essentially, you set it a kind of a control thing. I won't try to describe all the controls, but it's, it's reasonably, it takes about a week to become comfortable using it. But then it's just it's uh, it's miraculous. You uh, what you do is you uh, it looks like you're editing film. I mean you you feel like you are, but all you're really doing is you're giving time code instructions to these machines. You know, go to this time code, turn yourself on, and when you get to this time code, turn yourself off. By which time the next machine has run down to the next cut, and so forth. So you can actually look at what looks like a reel of film with every cut in it, but you haven't recorded anything. You haven't done the cuts. Well, you, you, well I mean, you haven't touched the film, but yeah. I mean, you haven't actually recorded the tape either. You're just looking at, I'll tell you what the advantage of not recording the tape is, you're just looking at the machines running to the exact point and turning themselves on at the, at, at, at the frame. And all the machines are sort of optimized and being sent to the part of the tape where they'll get to quickest. The thing is that if you record the tape and then you try to change it, you don't have room, you know, it's recorded. This way, you look at a cut and say, oh, I think I'll make that four frames longer. You just go to the whole thing. Next time you see it, it's four frames longer. Because all that's happening is the time code has changed. Instead of the machines doing what they did before, they're doing it, you know, X number of time code frames different. So where you can... You, where do you see the film? You sit in front, you have a TV screen. It's on TV. And then you have uh, eight little screens beneath you where you can sort of scroll by the first and last frames of every thing that is in the scene. And uh, all I can tell you is that compared to editing film, it's really like word processing, I would say compared to hacking words out of stone. The thing is that if you record the tape and then you try to change it, you don't have room, you know, it's recorded. This way, you look at a cut and say, oh, 
I think I'll make that four frames longer. You just go to the whole thing next time you see it, it's four frames longer. Because all that's happening is the time code has changed. Instead of the machines doing what they did before, they're doing it, you know, X number of time code frames different. So where you can. You, where do you see the film? You sit in front, you have a TV screen, it's on TV. And then you have uh, eight little screens beneath you where you can sort of scroll by the first and last frames of every thing that is in the scene. And uh, all I can tell you is that compared to editing film, it's really like word processing, I would say compared to hacking words out of stone. I mean, it's, that, it's more than word processing compared to handwriting. It's so much, uh, it's so much easier. Handling film is very clumsy and slow. I mean, the equivalent thing is you've got a, a row of boxes on the shelf with takes in them. You've got to take the take, or even if they're not in box, you've got to take the film, thread it up onto a steam back, run it down to the place you want to look at. Now, if you want to compare another thing and it's not on that roll, you've got to rewind the film, put the roll somewhere else, get another roll, and look at it. This thing allows you to, for example, if you have, uh, I don't know, say uh, 10 takes from different angles, and you want to compare the readings, you can literally isolate each bit so that if the guy says, uh, you know, hello, come in and sit down, you can see hello, come in and sit down 10 times in a row without any weight uh, and judge which one you like best. And then if the next bit that you put on, which you thought was the right bit, doesn't go with it, you go immediately back to those other ten, pick another one, and it, it's just like, it is like, it is the only, it is like word processing, but it's much faster than the comparison of, say, word, word processing to handwriting. It's, it must be, It is. Well, it's certainly one of the most. I mean, it's equal to writing. I mean, there are three equal things, I would say. The writing, the actual slogging it out of the filming, and the editing. Uh, so it is equal. And it just allows you so much more concentration and, uh, you know, not wasting time. You said that, uh, or maybe you were quoting from uh, in film, Editing is really the only uh, original and unique uh, art. That's right. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, everything else comes from some other. I mean, writing comes, from, you know, as writing and acting comes from the theater, or you know, uh, photography comes from photography. You know, I mean, everything else. There's only one thing where which is unique to film, and that is editing. And there's only one sort of aesthetic that is completely unique to film, and that is the way you see something edited, where you can see, you know, something from different points of view, almost simultaneously creating a new experience. As Pudufkin, he gives that example, I think, of the guy hanging the picture up on the wall, and suddenly, you know, you see his feet slip, and you see the ladder move, and you see his hand go down, and the picture fall off the wall, you know, and in a split second, a guy, say, falls off a ladder, and you see it in a way that you could not see it any other way, except through editing. Um, so, uh, and of course, TV commercials have figured that out. I mean, uh, probably the most uh, 
some of the most spectacular examples of film art, uh, if you leave content out of it, are in the best TV commercials. Uh, well, the ones that struck me, as I see, uh, I get the pro football game sent over me, and uh, Michelob did a, has done a series last year of kind of impressions of uh, people just having a good time with the editing and the photography and, and the, just the visual stuff is, I think, is the most brilliant I've ever seen. Have you seen City, any of those? City at Night from a yeah. that starts. And, yeah. Something. Well, there's a variety of them. And yeah. Incredible cutting. Uh, you know, I mean, eight frame cuts and yeah, just beautiful. And where, but where they, you realize in 30 seconds they've created an impression of something rather complex. Um, I've also thought that, you know, and I haven't done it, and no one else has, is that uh, the ultimate way of telling a film story would have more to do with TV commercials than it does to the way they are presently told, that the uh, economy of statement and the kind of uh, visual poetry, which actually, you know, if, as I say, if you forget what they're, what they're doing, you know, selling beer or something, uh, sort of, it's really visual poetry that if you could ever actually tell a story with anything like that kind of approach, first of all, you could handle uh, vastly uh, more complex and subtle material uh, and, yeah, and have something that you could... see people spend two million on 30 seconds. Yeah, I know. So it's a bit impractical. Yes, it's a bit impractical. But in the end, it, it, secondly, secondly, that's precisely where Michael yeah. But he hasn't done it. I mean, it, it's the stories that Dick. The trouble is that film stories are still really rooted in in theater. You know, you really are basically talking about scenes. Now they may take place outdoors, and they may be a little shorter than things. And when you really want weight and heat, there's probably nothing that would substitute for the great dramatic moment fully played out. But you're frequently stuck with uh, uh, doing things which you feel could be done much more, as they say, more poetically. But you have to establish a style from the beginning, and you have to do it. It has to be a certain kind of a story. I mean, it, it, I mean, there's no point in you couldn't do Learmy's dialogue like that. It just depends. I just see the story has to be written for it, and I'm not quite sure who would do it because writers don't write. Uh, visual things, and um, you know, even directors who write aren't really doing it. I mean, Woody Allen's movies, which are wonderful, are still very traditional in their structure. Well, you know, that was a tension that I, that I felt in uh, Full Metal Jacket. Um, it, it, it ran an edge Feeling it getting ready to spin off into the surreal. It never did. Well, there is a lot of surreal, borderline stuff in it, like Crazy Earl's speech about, uh, you know, I love these commie bastards, you know, so, you know. Uh, yeah, but I mean, some of the. Some of the uh, you know, where, where the dead NDA is sitting in the chair, and, uh, you know, that speech in the pagoda. Yeah. You know. Well, the book is very close to it also. I mean, about the only 
the only thing that I'd say even remotely like what I'm talking about in the film is I really tried to have a, an economy of statement in the thing, uh, which I hope uh, I hope is effective. I hope I got the year right on the, on the Michelob beer, because some of my TV, I've, occasionally I find myself looking at a 1984 game. <laughs> I think that the Giants were in the play, you know, they were the... You're a football fan? I like to watch pro football now. Don't you? I love pro football. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just, it doesn't... In fact, it's become very popular here. They've got... Uh, Channel 4 started it, and they started in a way which, you know, where they were explaining everything they did, and it was kind of hard to watch. But they now just, you know, they just have Frank Gifford uh, comes on, he does a little thing, and they just do the announcements from the game, they don't bother explaining it anymore. And when they had the Super Bowl, I think they had about, uh, when it, was on, it was on on a, I think it was a Sunday night. Was, was the Super Bowl on a Sunday? Whatever it was, it was broadcast at about 2 in the morning, and it had something like 8 million people watching it, which, I mean, it had an incredible rating. Uh, so the, people, the British have really uh, gotten onto American pro football. Yeah, they had a guy that, uh, that uh, British guy named something called Kobe Bryant. Yeah. He couldn't play, but he made the team. I know. You'd think with the rugby stuff that there'd be guys that could do it. Maybe there are, but no one's done it yet. They've got some kickers, I think, place kickers. Yeah, but rugby, see, rugby is glancing contest. I know. And arm tackling. And you're supposed to do it. Mm. That's, you that, couldn't do it any other way. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I don't think these guys could do it either if they had nothing yeah. on. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see Lawrence Taylor with no, uh, no protective gear. Yeah. I remember when Pete Dawkins came over here from, uh, maybe in Oklahoma's Rhodes, I guess, played rugby and uh, couldn't get over the, uh, <laughs> he kept tackling people head on, you know, smashed out. Was, what you do, you do, what you do wonder watching rugby is, uh, they, they do, you know, the all they're ever doing is sort of lateraling the ball, and uh, they, you know, you rarely see, uh, you know, a fumble where the other team picks up and runs for a, a score. You're watching rugby, you have the feeling they could do more of it in pro football, but I guess it's too dangerous. I don't know, I don't, perhaps there's more guys back there in a rugby thing in case the ball is dropped. There's a whole row of guys that could still yeah. rush over and. Yeah, and it isn't. You do see it sometimes, and you do see it in desperation, you know, 30 seconds to go on the kickoff, you'll see an attempt at lateraling it. Uh, I've never seen it succeed, but... Well, they, a, lot of these, uh, a lot of these college teams do, do uh, quarterback option power sweeps, but you almost never see the throws. Sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I've been here before, but I sort of. But it's Lolita, you did it. Yeah. But it was on and off before that, yeah. But then you, you said, well, I'm not an expatriate either. Right. Well, I mean, I tell you, there are three places I could live that would be practical. Because you've got to live in a some kind of a major production center. I could live in L.A., New York, or London. Now, London, New York is really inferior as a production center to London. Hollywood is better, but I really don't like living there. So I, I don't really think I'm living it. I mean, I, I, I more think of it, i got three choices. And London is the best choice. I don't think I'm living in, I haven't said, oh, I don't want to live in America. Uh, but I would have to live in one of those three places. Uh, and it really comes down to that. And um, well, we're sitting here in a very graceful, uh, very graceful uh, in an English uh, drawing room, wainscoted. We're looking out into a formal garden. Oh, it's a very it's nice place to live. No, I mean it's not a burden to live here. But I mean, I, I mean, if New York was a better place to work, I'd live in New York. I mean, I basically, you know, I have to. It really comes down to that. Um, and um, I must say, I really don't like living in Los Angeles. New York, I like New York, uh, but it is not as good a place to work. And this place is really just very, very practical to work in. And uh, you know the work takes so long that you basically you basically have to live where you work, where you do most of your work, and uh, also uh, you know little things happen when I you know when your children start to go to school, it gets harder to move them around. Uh, if you have a dog, you can't bring it in and out of England because there's a six month quarantine. So you wind up, aside from the fact that uh, well that, that would, that's the reason why I don't really sort of flip back and forth, but. Um, it is the more it is the most practical place to work, and uh, it, because of having dogs and children, uh, you really can't kind of say, "Well, I'll live six months here and six months there." You really basically wind up just living. Here. I have uh, I got three golden retrievers and um, a little dog that we found on the motorway, which we're not sure what he is. Uh, yeah, and. Um, there is a six-month quarantine. There's, there's no rabies in England. No. Come in. It's one of the things that they're worried about, the Channel Tunnel. It would be easy for people to smuggle them. Great. You know, they got to speak English. So just forget about it. So you can say, well, why don't you live in Paris? I, like, I mean, basically, you have to speak English, and you have to have the film facility. So I, I you know, I just sort of think of those three places, and that's it. Well, the, these are all the questions I'm going to ask in this part. When you, we, we have to introduce you, and, and you, you live in the suburbs, you must have wondered, and you mentioned the children, there's two children. Three girls. Three girls. They're now grown up, but I mean, yeah. back in 68, they weren't. Christiana, who is the girl that was in the sequence in there. That was, a, that was another reason why it was a good sequence. <laughs> <laughs> is she actually singing the song? Yeah. Well, she would, oh, yeah, she's an actress. She was an actress. She's now a painter. Yes, I know. 
and that's where you better. Yeah. I don't think that's true, but I mean, critical uh, critical opinion on my films has always more or less uh, been settled by what I would call subsequent critical opinion. I mean, the initial reactions to most of the films are usually wrong, uh, or a lot of them are wrong. Um, whether the people, whether they don't get the handle on it immediately and don't know how to deal with it in the sort of hour and a half they've left to write the review. Uh, or what? Uh, but somehow, uh, with most of the films, the subsequent uh, critical opinion is the one that establishes it, you know, as an important film. Where if you read some of the initial reviews, uh, on, on all of them, I mean, uh, but I mean, this seems to be true of a lot of films. I was amazed to read some of the reviews of Citizen Kane when it came out, uh, and they weren't particularly. They weren't. They weren't very impressed with it. Really. Uh, so. Uh, I was amazed, for instance, when Dr. Strangelove came out. You know, I mean, not only wasn't it appreciated by uh, various important critics, but it was really vitriolically attacked. Uh, Bosley Crowther in the Times wrote a piece where uh, I think the headline said, Moscow gold could not buy more harm to America, and that sort of stuff. And, uh, and strangely enough, um, you couldn't say, well, liberals liked it. In re I mean... William Buckley wrote a terrific review of it, and uh, you, could, you could not tell where their support would come from. Uh, and um, eventually, uh, Loudon Wainwright in Life magazine wrote an actually an editorial where he compared the criticism of the film with uh, the then cri criticism from some Soviet general, <clears throat> you know, saying that Russian artists should, you know, do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, where life actually came out, you know, life came out and supported the film. So you couldn't, uh, you know, subsequently it's hard to believe that people, you know, could, could you know, that there'd be this sort of reactions. Speaking of that, yeah. It's, uh, well, I, that goes to my, Why are the, point, the point that I was saying. Producing feelings, producing strong feelings with no easy answers often uh, antagonizes some people. Well, it certainly... It certainly can antagonize and possibly confuse critics, because suddenly they're they're sitting there and they've got to say something, and they're not quite sure what to say. So they say, "Well, he must be full of shit," and I'll just say that. Uh, but I mean, you know, I, I remember a very important critic in Los Angeles uh, criticized *Paz the Glory* because the uh, guys didn't speak with French accents. You know, which hardly seems, you know, when you look at the film, a relevant criticism. Uh, but they've all, they've all been. Uh, it's all been I mean, that sort of thing. That, that's always struck me as kind of strange. Anyway, you you, you have uh, you know you have the World War II scene and you have the you have the Nazis planning something and and you want your audience to understand what they're saying, so you have them speak in English. But 
they speak with a German accent. <laughs> with, with sort of Clint Eastwood doing a German accent. You know, without, if it's one thing if they had German actors. Yeah, right. But they've got really phony accents, you know, with Americans trying to, you know, uh, so it's... Uh, uh, and of course, 2001 drew an incredible range of responses in the beginning. I mean, you know, some people thinking it was wonderful, but a lot of reviews really just uh, just treating it as if it was some sort of a awful mess. Yeah, it, and you know, after, after that, um, The Shining seems to hold up really well. That holds up. It gets better. I mean, I've seen it three times. It, well, well, The Shining uh, probably, you know, had the easiest, most accessible kind of story. I mean, uh, it, uh, those that expected, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I mean, even that, uh, people uh, uh, were looking. There were, the other problem I find is that people are always looking, they come to my films expecting the last film or the film before the last, yeah. and they're coming, waiting for something, and when it doesn't, you know, like waiting for a fastball, and then somebody throws you a slow changeup, you know, and, and, they, and, they, and they don't like it. You know, they, they swing at the fastball, and they think, shit, you know, he threw me the wrong pitch. Uh -huh. uh, and uh -huh. this is what happens, uh, I think. And as I say, subsequently, somehow it settles down, and a general uh, kind of opinion arises, which has been very good. Well, this is what's, see, this is, I suspect that uh, this, this will be, this will be a commercial critical success, but I think there's going to be some of that, uh, some of that happen because it's a pretty straight ahead linear But it is a little like the batter saying the pitcher threw me the wrong pitch. You know, <laughs> uh -huh. it isn't that I swung wrong. He, he should have thrown me what I thought I was going to get. You know, uh, I found that audiences actually are much more, um, much more reliable initially than critics because uh, they are, uh, they don't bring all the baggage that the critic brings. And uh, oh, great. in the face of these incredible reviews in 2001, most of which were not good, uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning on the first day at the Capitol Theater, and there were lines around the block. And um, I remember sitting in the office at MGM where they were very, very worried because they had had, uh, you know, they, these, some of the reviews were really insulting, uh, let alone bad. And uh, I remember this guy came in that had been down in the street and he came up and he said that there were lines around the block and he looked amazed and he said, well, what kind of people are there? And he said, oh, you know, 
people with beads around their neck and blacks. <laughs> and uh, they all sat there, you know, wondering what the, what, what, what was it what was it all about. Uh, but it's very hard to understand also where the audience gets the uh, the sense of the film, but they they frequently do in the face of. Uh, wrong reviews and even advertising, which doesn't seem to be aimed at the people that finally wind up being there. There seems to be some sense that they get, uh, and they get it from that. Something more complex than word of mouth. Well, word of mouth is the thing that finally does it, but you, you, the interesting thing is, who are the people that show up on the first day, you know, and why are they there? It can't be word of mouth, because nobody's seen it. Uh, Ultimately, it is word of mouth that does it, because, I mean, the only reason that uh, I think people ever go to a film, I mean, there are very few, very few people that you can say have a film-going habit. It's some, you know, and it's probably, you know, somebody they know who says, gee, I saw this film, and it's fantastic, you've got to go see it. Because um, every, every film, if you look in the Times, every film says, engrossing, you know, the due for an Oscar, uh, you know, the, the, for the last hit of the year. Every film gets quotes. I don't know. Somebody, somebody seems to like every film. Thank you. Uh, so, you know. There's certain critics who I think like to have their names on the, mm. you know, on the poster. It's a rare oh, film, though, that can't scrape up, you know, a page full of quotes. Uh, so, obviously, you know, part of the whole pattern, I mean, it helps if the critics like it. It particularly helps if the TV critics like it, because a lot of people hear it. But finally, I think it's the people. You know, it's what do the audience really like it? Because um, I think it's only when the critics happen to agree with the audience that it looks like the critics have made it. Because uh, uh, you see, I mean, there are a lot of films where critics like it and still nobody gets to see it. I mean, even when they haven't scraped together some sort of bottom of the barrel quotes, where actually there is a people, the critics really like it, but somehow the people don't. Yeah, it is. You know, sometimes it even they don't like it. Another factor is that sometimes people like a film, but they don't say anything about it. If you if you ask them, did you see so and so? They say, oh yeah, it was, I liked it a lot. But they have to not only like it, they have to actually come forward and say something about it to their friends. Uh, that seems to be the thing that, that does it.
hope it's that if you have a film that moves along like that, that's uh, you know maybe you would like to just see it go on longer. I don't know. But, that might be a, it was one hour fifty-five minutes. Yeah. Um, but it certainly wasn't. Um, Right? When you read the book, you'll, I think you'll see that the third section of the book doesn't really know, add anything to the film. I didn't realize Ending a war movie is very difficult anyway, because, uh, you know, where, where do you get off? Uh, unless you send the guy back to America at the end, uh, sort of your kids in the involvement. Or, you, or, you know, you either, you either see him leave, or he gets killed. Uh, so, uh, there is always a... It's not an easy end. How do you like London? You've been here before, haven't you? Yeah. Angeles is that, um, you know, that when they've depicted people, you know, film stories about film people, they sort of show them being corrupted in Hollywood. But it isn't that you're corrupted, it's, I think. It's that you have a tremendous sense of the insecurity and kind of low-level malevolence and of, of uh, that's there, and uh, uh, you know, uh, it's very good to um, to insulate yourself from it. So that, you know, you feel that you're actually doing just some work, you know. And uh, uh, and somehow in England, um, that really is uh, very remote. I read Variety and something like that to keep up with, you know, the trade bullshit, but. Uh, it's 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 good to get it sort of uh, on a printed page and not, uh, you know, every place you go, you meet people who say, "How's it going?" And yeah. Or, when are we going to see your next one? Or uh, when will it be finished? You know? <laughs> but with it, with it, you know, with it, perhaps an unconscious uh, thing. But you know, I mean, although you know, when something is good, I think people appreciate it. But I think it, you know, there is a insecure and competitive feeling there that uh, uh, where they like trouble and they like uh, I mean in this case I mean we had uh, a terrific screening for Warner Brothers on May 23rd with a rough dub of the picture you know, rough sound mix which was done in one day and uh, I mean they were very very in fact uh, Bob Daly uh, put his arms around me and kissed me and uh, um, uh, and I was thinking to myself, well, having seen The Godfather, it may not have exactly the meaning, I think, but then Terry Semmel said, um, this is going to make our year. So I, I knew that this was, this was what I had hoped it was. 
but you know they love the film. But I was so far behind with the sound mixing and the lab work that we blew this uh, June 13th sneak and had to put it back to June 19th. And just by doing that, I mean, like, uh, so many, you know, they got phone calls, what's wrong with the picture, you know, or, uh, what's he doing, you know, and uh, there was a completely preposterous story in the uh, Hollywood Reporter last week where it said that I'd rejected 600 prints from the lab, and that's why the picture was hard. Well, I mean, in fact, I haven't rejected any of the bulk release printing at all. And, um, you know, the lab works very smoothly. So there is this sort of sense there of what, waiting what, to pounce. What? what took the time? Well, I wasn't ready. I wasn't finished. I mean, normally it takes four to six weeks to mix the soundtracks. So I started mixing the soundtracks the day after that screening, which was the 24th of May. Well, I mean, today is the uh, 10th of June, so I've had 10 days. Uh, so I've had 17 days to do what normally takes uh, four to six weeks. I mean, I, the, in fact, the last reel that you saw still isn't. You, the music was wrong. The, the music for the sniper scene will be different. Uh, and the reel, is, the reel is cut the way it is, but I still haven't finished the last reel of sound. Well, it was a background. It was an original score. Yeah. Some of it was the way it will be, but for instance, the last piece was still being written, and just, we just sort of bunged something in there. Uh, but it did work, but it'll be better when uh, when you see it. But you know, the thing is, as I say, right now when I leave you, I'm going to shepherd, and um, we're now finally mixing the last reel, and they're bulk printing the picture now. They've done uh, four reels you know, 800 prints, and there's, and there's two more reels to do. But, as I say, there is a, there seems to be, you know, a propensity, and in the trade press also, of, uh, you know, looking for trouble, you know. Uh, and yeah, uh, so it's nice to be, I understand, it's pleasant not to be right to get the direct exposure of it. Oh, I mean, I mean, part of my problem is that I cannot dispel the myths which have somehow uh, accumulated from people just sort of putting stuff in, you know, which is completely, absolutely off the wall wrong. And uh, you can't, you know, they, they, they get saved and repeated in the, in the files. I mean, this is, this is the way it goes now. Insane perfectionist. An insane perfectionist. And uh, that, uh, because of this, he's very difficult. Well, there's a lot more. Uh, I, 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 oh yeah. I mean, I mean, for instance, I mean, I've read that I, I wear a football helmet uh, in a car and I don't let my driver go more than 30 miles an hour. Well, I mean, I drive I drive a Porsche 928S myself. And I don't have a driver, and I sometimes drive it, you know, at uh, 80 or 90 miles an hour on a motorway. Um, uh, but, and, 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 what, and, you know, actors, uh, uh, you know, it always happens with the actors that themselves have uh, been uh, unprepared. Actors have uh, 
are sometimes uh, undisciplined enough not to go home and go to sleep at night and learn their lines. And they go out, and they come the next day, and they haven't learned their lines. They cannot act without knowing dialogue. If you have to think about anything when you're acting, even if you can say the words, if you have to think about the words, you cannot work on the emotion. And if you, and if you, and even, of course, if you, even thinking about the words make mistakes, I mean, you're just miles away from what you're doing. So it's happened on every film, you know, where somebody will do this pretty consistently. And once they start, uh, you really, there's not much you can do about them. You can fire them on day one and maybe replace them. But when you get into day 12, you know, you can threaten them, you can cajole them, you can try to appeal to their sense of uh, what reputation they're creating among the crew. And, but it doesn't. Some people are simply not able to get themselves sufficiently together to, you know, over a period of time, discipline themselves and go home and work. You know? So they come in and they don't have their lines. So now we get into a thing where do you start shooting? Uh, and, uh, or, you know, at what point do you start? So you usually start too early. They blow a lot of takes where they're not doing it properly. Uh, so you wind up, say, with this particular actor, you know, maybe doing 30 takes of something, and every one of them is in some way fucked up because he really hasn't got a grip on it. Then the guy goes back to America, and if he's nice, he says, oh boy, Stanley's such a perfectionist. He does 100 takes on every scene. I had to do this thing, you know, 100 times. So the 30 becomes 100. And of course, they never say why you did so many takes. Uh, uh, I don't do a lot of takes when it's good. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, you really, there's no way to fake your way through it if you don't know the words. If you have to think, you cannot think about the words. Uh, and you can see it in there. You can just see a lack of concentration in their eyes, and there's no way they can do it. And, you know, you're stuck. You're standing there, there's 100 people waiting. So you either, you either try to shoot it and hope you get something out of it in pieces, or you, or you send them back to their dressing room, you do nothing, and they're trying to learn the line. So whatever happens, it's, it's not good. So I, I now have this, this reputation of doing 100 takes on everything, and it simply isn't true. I mean, if I did that, I'd never finish it any film. Well, Lee, for instance, I mean, Lee was very prepared. Lee worked like a son of a because of his, you know, being a Marine. I mean, Lee went fucking, you know, he came and he would spend every second working with a dialogue coach when he wasn't on the stage, you know, going over the lines and over the lines. Lee always knew his lines. And I mean, you know, I suppose Lee averaged, you know, I don't know, eight, nine takes, ten takes or something, and sometimes three takes, because he was prepared. Uh, I can't, I don't want to name, I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but there is a, you know, the two things have brought this on. To work all day, go home and learn the lines and go to sleep. They just aren't prepared to do that. Uh, perhaps in the old days, when there was fear of the studio or something, they did it. And I have worked with actors who, like George Scott, who came so prepared, I mean, it was just such a pleasure to work with. But, Usually, the usually actors that come from a theater background who have, you know, you know, have to know their lines, and have gotten perhaps into the habit of learning their lines. I think partly due to the uh, to the miss to abusing the ideas of improvisation, a lot of actors, even by their acting teachers, because you talk to them and the teachers said, 
type it up. Triple space. Triple space. And, uh, give me a, a give me at least a day to have a crack at it because yeah. uh, I don't know. Have you ever heard? Have you ever done one of these things and seen someone print exactly what you're saying? Yeah. No. I. Yeah, I you know I, what I mean. I don't do that. For one thing, for one thing, part of my uh, part of my technique is, uh, is such as it is 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 to ask the question once and then circle around and ask it again sometimes. Well, no, I find that, um, you know, the two problems. One is that the interviewer makes up the quotes, which obviously I'm not going to do. And the other is that he prints exactly what you said. And uh, when, you, when you get it down exactly as you said it and you see it in print, it, it looks dumb, usually. Yeah, you really get a sentence out. I'm not going to make up my, I'm not going to try to sound like Winston Churchill, but I'd like to just tidy it up. Yeah. Okay. I will, uh, I will find, as soon as I, as soon as I get it written, what I will ask, uh, thing of what I imagine this length might be, that when you get a single, you know, it's impossible, you have, I have to retype the whole thing to get my, you know, bits in between the lines, oh, cross see. words out, yeah. yeah. I gotta have right room to write on, okay. to change the words, sure. you know, change a word or, you know, tighten this, this is no, this is no problem. When are you gonna? When is this piece gonna run? We will. That's why we have the purpose of running. We're trying to get it to run. We originally wanted it before June. We hope it. Month June 26. Now we will try to do it. I didn't finish that thing, but I think I'd said it earlier. Just that, you know, an actor has to leave himself, you know, time at night to learn his, to think about, first of all, to think about what he's going to do and to learn his lines and to go to sleep. I mean, nobody can work day after day, you know, with two or three hours sleep and without knowing their lines properly. Well, that's the same Lines. He'd get away with it because you ask him a question, he sort of does his thing and he, you think he's thinking, he's actually looking up there at the thing. And you better ask the kid. You know? And uh, it works for him. But boy, uh, you try to get through a long speech like that, you can't. But Marlon, uh, you know, Marlon's a genius too. But Marlon would be, you know, I, I'm sure in the Godfather, Marlon learned his lines. I mean, when Mar Marlon's greatest parts, I'm sure he remembered his lines. You know? I'm sure he knew his lines in Street Line Design. stories about you and what is that you don't fly. That is true. Although I did, I, <coughs> on a boat. Although, you know, I, 
actually was at one time very interested in flying and, and got, had a pilot's license. I flew out of uh, Teterboro Airport in New Jersey. And um, I don't know what it was, but perhaps just a little bit of knowledge, and I began to just not like airliners. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like to fly. And some people fly being afraid, and some people just don't. I suppose if I absolutely had to, I would, but uh, I just don't like it. journalist, you know, trying to find an interesting handle. Obviously, if you try to get something right, and you work a little harder, perhaps than some people do on it, if somebody wants to put the worst face on it, they'll call it mindless perfectionism. But first of all, uh, I think the films have a, uh, a quality, you know, which holds up on uh, second, third, and fourth viewings, where you see things that you don't see the first time. Where, uh, you know, which is a result of, uh, of the thought and care that's gone into it. Uh, you can get away with a lot, uh, you know, if people only look at a movie once. Uh, but if you really, you know, it's, it's like saying a writer who spends uh, several years writing a book, he, maybe he could write it in five months. You know, is he a mindless perfectionist? Uh, all I can say is my budgets are well within reasonable limits. and. Um, the only film I've ever made which uh, was economically uh, uh, poor from the studio's point of view was Barry Lyndon. Every other film has been very good from the studio's point of view, even if they haven't gone as far as giving profits to the producer, which you probably know is a very favorable formula to the studio, so that you really got to go big, big, big to get profits as a producer. So, you know, my, my pictures don't cost that much. Uh, I found a way to spend a little extra time on them by making them in an inexpensive way and getting the quality on the screen. And uh, I think that I think the uh, you know the charge is unjustified on every level for the description of, of uh, mindless. I'm not sure that uh, the fact is that the studio There's somebody out there that's you know, putting, the, putting the money into it. If, if you were uh, this uh, professional soldier, I don't suppose that uh, anybody would No. But it brings me to the original one of these questions. And that is how have you, how does man manage? Make these films with this little compromise in the in the system. Well, I think the answer really is what I just said. That first of all, the films for what they put on the screen are relatively, you know, reasonably budgeted. They're not low budgeted, but they're not really high budgeted. 
What's the highest budget? Oh, no, no. I mean, I suppose uh, perhaps The Shining might have been the most expensive film. Uh, but, I mean, this film, you know, cost $16.5 million. Uh, and, you know, in today's market, that's not a big budget of pictures. There's a lot on the screen for that. Uh, <clears throat> you know, obviously, people can make a cheaper movie. And uh, under certain very fortunate circumstances, people have done a lot, you know, for less if they go to the right places it was. They're lucky enough for the picture to be made in a, you know, some sort of cheap economy or something. But all I can say is that I have no problem getting financing, because uh, the films have all delivered uh, for the studios. And um, you know, it's easy to, uh, you know, for people to make remarks about, you know, oh, you shouldn't pay attention to this, you shouldn't worry about that. But you know, I think they're unjustified. And I think that, uh, as I say, I think it's just a Know, a way of putting a, a bad face on something which essentially is good. The conventional sort of take on you in terms of why you need to have your hands on all these, all the drugs that you get those those personal. Did in fact have to have your hands on everything because nobody else was going to do it. Well, that's where I learned how to do everything. That's where you learned how to do everything. Right. And then uh, the, the Spartacus thing left a bad taste in your mouth. And, uh, yeah. and from that time on, you wanted to keep your hands on it. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, there it's are really. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you love, that's why you have to really love the story to begin with and want to spend the time on it. I'd rather spend, I'd much rather spend three or four years on one film than make, you know, two or three films in the period and let all sorts of things go, go, uh, you know, go wrong. Um, well, the reason uh, they let you do it, just to reiterate, is it's films don't cost that much. And, all, and they deliver. They deliver and they have been, uh, Some of the comments people are amazed that you worry about theaters, you know, where the picture is being shown and the projectors, because they think that's some form of demented anxiety. But I mean, uh, for instance, Lucas Films uh, put up some money and have a thing called the Theater Evaluation Program, and they went around and checked a lot of theaters, and uh, they, they published a report, and the report virtually, uh, I mean, confirms your worst suspicions that. Uh, you know, that within one day, 50% of the prints are scratched, that the theaters are usually uh, have something broken, you know, the amplifier is no good and the sound is bad, uh, the reflector has burnt out on the 
in the back of the thing and the lights uneven and dark and you know if you catch well, a theater this is what I found tell me about this films that I've seen lately have all seemed too dark yeah. They're dark on the screen. They, they, they it's the theaters. No, no. The thing is that most theaters try to put a screen that's bigger than the light source that they've paid for in the projector. You know, if you buy a 2,000 watt projector, and really that's only going to give you a decent picture, say, I don't know, 20 feet wide, and you make the picture 40 feet wide by putting on a wider angle lens, you're putting in 200% less light. It's an inverse law of squares with uh, t doubling the picture size, and uh, so they, you know, they they get they try to get away with a cheaper light source. It costs more money to buy the bigger thing. They might have to buy a new projector, but they want the biggest picture, so it's dark. Uh, they uh, projectionists are sometimes frequently now you have the manager projectionist, who you know the thing runs. Nobody's even looking at it. And it might be some 19-year-old kid who's filling in for a week that they showed how to thread the thing once. Who can't come to buy. Yeah. And exhibitors are terribly guilty of uh, ignoring the quality that they should, the minimum quality they should put on the screen. Another thing that happens, because of the cake stand projection, you know, where they put all the reels together in a continuous thing and never comes off, they never clean the aperture gate. And you start to one little piece of gritty dust gets in there, and every time it runs, it gets a little bigger, and after a couple of days, it's starting to put a scratch from one end of the film to the other, and you'll see pictures which have scratches that begin on the first reel and go to the end, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and they, they really wrecked the Lucas report, I think, found that at the end of 15 days, most prints should be junked. Now, you know, is it an unreal concern if I want to make sure that on the press shows, or on the key, you know, city things, that someone goes and checks the theater out three or four days before to make sure nothing's broken. Because a lot of times it's just that stuff is broken and hasn't, the manager hasn't wanted to repair it or the theater owner doesn't give a shit. So, you know, and since it's really only a phone call or two or pressurizing some people to go and do it, you know, it's not that hard to try to get it done. And so I do it. Uh, what other, uh, what other nationals besides uh, chess and football? Well, I like to read. Everything, anything. Well, everything. I mean, reading, I've realized, I just, you know, I've decided it's just, uh, there's so many books. <laughs> And so little time to read it that I, I, I now just go for almost a rent. Obviously, I mean, I don't just go to a bookstore and take things off the shelf with my eyes closed, but I just start to read almost anything that has possibly interest. And if I don't like it, I don't keep reading. But uh, the sort of chance encounter with a book is about the only way to do it because you just cannot possibly uh, read enough. Is there another for sure? No, I think the short term is, I think I read a review in the Virginia Kirkus report, which sounded very, very interesting. I think that's what happened. Funny thing is, I can't actually remember. I don't know why. I'm almost positive that's what happened. You did the Kirkus Yeah. Well, that's a good way to, I must say, very few. Well, it's a pre-publication. Yeah. 
And it's also, but it's even better than that, because they do a really good sense of the book in, you know, so many lines. You, do you read it? Well, yeah. Uh, I, I don't particularly read it, but uh, they, they gave me a good review. And it was the first review. It's a yeah. pre-publication service, too. And they're not, they can be a little foul-tempered. Uh, yeah. They're not like Publishers Week. No. It's kind of normal. I find they write very sensible reviews. Uh, you know, they, the, you know, perhaps the most sensible. I mean, reviews are never reliable and never really right. But I find they write a very sensible review. And when, when a book sounds interesting, it almost always is interesting to read. Unfortunately, you know, so few books are suitable to make films of for millions of reasons. I mean, one of which is that novels. You know, especially if they're good, are uh, usually destroyed in the process of trying to make them into a film. I wouldn't think of it that way because I, I, my, my theory is that subject matter is almost irrelevant. You know, uh, you cannot say what people will or won't see, and, and really, if you do something that's artistically uh, exciting, it transcends, you know, the the subject matter. Uh, well, I, what I've done, I've, I've, I've simply taken, I've taken the last third of the book from the time the guys captured. I think, you know, the, the criteria, you know, is, are you being true to the material and is it interesting? That's all you can think about. If you try to add guess, uh, you know, how will people react to this or that, you, you, you don't know what you're doing anymore, I think. Uh, you can't really guess that. You know, does it give you pleasure? Is, is it interesting and are you being true to the material? I think that's the only way you can uh, come to any kind of decision. You're writing the screenplay. One, one thing I can give you, one suggestion, do not write long shot, close up, track, just write what people say and do. And I would put more in the thing than normally is in the screenplay, because screenplays are the worst medium for reading uh, I think had ever been invented, you know, I mean, I'd put things in that, you know, uh, I mean, normally they just put in, these, you know, he walks across the room, he turns white, <laughs> you know. I would put in, I, I would write it, what I, what I did for this to try to help people, we, 
we try to write, write this thing in sort of like a, not even in a screenplay format, but with just text and dialogue, uh, and try to give a sense of, yeah, just like it was a, a story. Uh, just because you can't read a screenplay. I, one of the terrible things about a screenplay is that you tend to skip everything but the dialogue. And it works if it's a Neil Simon comedy, reading it. But an awful lot of screenplays, no sense of mood or anything is ever appreciated because they just your eye just goes to that narrow paragraph of the dialogue. You know, that's, that's funny because uh, I have written a screenplay in 20 years and I did it in hours. It takes hours and hours. Uh, it seems to me it's a much different process than actually writing prose than I've described in the uh, While you're picking and choosing about the scenes that you want to do, it's more like fitting a puzzle together. You put this piece in and you say, Well, that's why, you know, I said to you earlier, it's sort of like breaking a code. It is that. And of course, the other thing that even you writing it, I mean, you know, and I mean, meat, uh, you can never anticipate what the actor can actually contribute, which makes uh, some of the scene redundant uh, or. Uh, Perhaps what he doesn't contribute, where you know it has to be made clear, uh, the emotional sense of what the actor might be thinking adds such an element to it that cannot ever be put on the page. That uh, in in filming, you always, I think, uh, certainly I do, you have to to use the football analogy. You do have to reserve the option of calling automatics when you see the lineup because. Uh, you know, you go out there and you think it looks great on paper, and suddenly you look at it and you realize that something is all too clear, and you got so many lines that are still hammering away at it, and you realize the guy just has to look at somebody a certain way, and you know what this much dialogue might have done, and you have to reshape it. Or conversely, it isn't clear at all, or it's something, or, or another thing that happens is a, an idea may arise that you just never thought of. That's so exciting when you actually see it happen that you have to cobble something together right on the spot. So although, <clears throat> as I say, the actors have to learn their lines, you still have to be ready sometimes to break away from that and uh, exploit opportunities that you suddenly discover in the process of rehearsing the scene. Uh, I find that um, the only difficult part of making a movie for me is the first working out of the scene, shooting it. Once, once you know what you're doing, and once they know what they're doing, and once you're sure that what they're doing is interesting and relevant, getting them to do it right is relatively easy unless you've hired the wrong people. The hardest thing is to make sure that what you're doing is you're doing the right thing and, it, and that uh, the scene is written right and their attitudes and ideas are correct. Uh, the, the, the getting it out of them is the easiest part. You said, what time did you plan with? Because, yeah, let me just do that. In dealing with actors, uh, you, you said something about giving them the idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, give me an example. Well, I mean, whatever you're saying, you could be thinking about something 
that isn't literal, usually are. I mean, when you talk to people, it's really some other idea. It may be some other idea. You're not, you're not thinking exactly the meaning of the words. So the attitude of the actor, you know, is, uh, it could be anything. You know, I mean, you know, you could say, uh, would you pass the salt? And you could mean, uh, you know, I love you. You could mean, uh, I'm bored with you. You could mean, uh, you know, you're making me nervous. You could mean anything. So, you know, the, the thought behind it is the thing that, in a sense, the novelist does when he describes the inner life of the character or describes just the way somebody says something. And the dialogue frequently isn't enough of a clue as to what the attitude might be. And the sort of accurate <clears throat> shaping of the attitude and the changes of the attitude in the scene, in a sense, the director becomes someone, something like a novelist uh, at that point. Uh, practically every moment. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't know where to start because whatever, whatever they're saying, I mean, they could mean. But I know, but I want to. You, you gave it it's a lot. It's very hard. Maybe yeah. something concrete. Jesus, that's hard to do. I'll think about it. Now, if you want, I'll fax it to you. But I mean, as a generality, it's it's uh, it is really what uh, aside from the cinematic aspects of, you know. Uh, the, the staging of the movement, the photography, the composition, the coverage for the editing, you know, how many shots you for which purpose. The, certainly from the acting point of view, that is really what you're talking about. And then you just become, the next thing you do is you become a sort of a taste uh, judge. You know, is it, is it, is the balance right? You know, is it, first of all, is it real? And then is it interesting? I mean, first thing is, is it, is it accurate? Does it say what you want to say? Second, has he managed to make it real? Because it could be accurate, and he hasn't found a way to make it real. But even if you get it accurate and real, <clears throat> there's one last step that if you really try to get it working, is can, he, can you make it more interesting? Is there some aspect of the thing that can make it more interesting? And those really are the three things that an actor, you know, that you're concerned about with a, with a, with a performance.